And we're going to be in the book of 1 John this morning. Uh, 1 John, and we're going to continue on with our uh, study of uh, the Scriptures uh, today as we look at this uh, New Testament uh, letter. Um, so grateful. I appreciate your faithfulness in being here week in and week out. And, uh, and listening, uh, come, sitting under the, the preaching, teaching of God's Word and your hunger, your, your desire for the truth of God's Word. I'm grateful for you as a church family. And the title of this paragraph that I've, I gave last week and we'll look at again this week is Love in Action. Love in Action. More than merely saying the words, I love you, the Scripture calls you and I as the people of God to love one another in action, to love one another in action. And so this is the message that we're discovering in the paragraph today. Love must be something that we not just say, but something that we must demonstrate. And so having said that, let's look into the scripture today for our text. We're going to be reading verses 11 to 18 of chapter 3. And we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday and try to work our way through, hopefully through the rest of this paragraph uh, this morning. Beginning in verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so let's consider what, uh, what the Word of God here is saying. We can, if we want to maybe kind of capture this paragraph in a statement, it might be this, that the evidence of new life will not be seen, or not, will, will not only be heard in our words, but it will be seen in our life that we live, right? The evidence of salvation will not be only heard by the words that we say, but will be seen in the life that we live. This is the vital sign. This is the evidence of being born again, being that we have passed from death to life, that we love one another. Now, when we think about this command that is given to us here at the start, loving one another, some of us, and I would imagine most of us here, there are times where we have misconceptions, misunderstandings, about what it means to truly love one another, that this paragraph is seeking to help us not only understand, but help us to under apply. You say, what are some of these misconceptions, misunderstandings? Well, sometimes we may think, well, uh, to love one another, well, that means I have to have warm feelings for someone. And, well, warm feelings are nice, but that's not necessarily the expression or the extent of love. Loving others, another misconception is that loving others is the same as liking others only to a greater degree. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones, how he distinguished uh, liking and loving one another. Liking is something that happens instinctively, that there's a, a chemistry 
uh, reaction. That we, we might say we, there's chemistry between us. And we're, it's something easy. It comes naturally. We respond normally, naturally. That's like loving one another. Loving one another is not necessarily natural. It's not necessarily based on chemistry and the personality similarities and we have shared common interests and shared likes and dislikes. That loving one another is not determined by any of those things. It becomes an act of our will. Martin Lloyd-Jones brought this distinction out and he said that we have not been called to like one another, but we have been commanded to love one another. And I think there's a good distinction that we need to keep in mind. We might, another misconception is that loving others is conditional. And I think that we instinctively would say, well, it's, love is not conditional. It's unconditional. And yet, how many times do we make excuses for our actions? Things like, well, you know, some people are just hard to love. And I'm only human. Right? And so we have made an excuse to say that, well, yeah, I know love is unconditional, but in this case, it's conditioned. And there's a good reason for it. Related to that misconception is that real love is reciprocal. If love is not returned in degree or kind or time, well, then I'm not obligated to keep on loving them. I've done my part. They're not doing their part, so hey, it's on them now. And yet that's not what the scriptures allow. We might say love has limits. You're telling me, Pastor, that I have to love those who make my life difficult? Come on, I'm only human. That's why God gave us the Spirit. We might say, well, I can love someone in my heart. That doesn't mean I have to, you know, do everything with them. Again, we have to think through what does it mean to love one another. The passage that we're looking at this morning helps us understand the definition and the expression of love. And so to clear up these misconceptions, as we saw last week, John begins by um, giving to us the command there in verse 11. He says, love one another. Now, he says in verse 11, he says, this is not a new message that you've heard, that this is the old message. This is a message you've heard from the beginning. It was part of the apostolic teaching, right, from the very beginning, rooted in the Old Testament, uh, taught by Jesus Christ and proclaimed by the apostles, that God's not changing the rules in the middle of the game. He's just saying that the, to love one another is part of the fabric of the gospel message. And I need to stop here, and I want to clarify something. After the service last Sunday, somebody came with a question, and their question was this. He said, Pastor, are you saying that we're only supposed to love the people of God? Because if we only love the people of God, and we don't love the people who have yet to believe in God, we'll never take the gospel to them. So let me try to clarify that. It was a great question. Let me try to clarify that, right? When we think of the great commandment, God says, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love who? Yourself as your neighbor, right? No, just kidding. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So our love is to be vertical to the Lord and is to be horizontal to our neighbors, right? Now, who falls in the category of our neighbors? Well, Christ, throughout his ministry, 
and, and throughout the scriptures, that's spelled out for us, right? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Matthew chapter 5. Love strangers. Hebrews chapter 13. That word there for strangers would be the word for those who are uh, outside uh, those of a different race, those outside of your commonwealth, those outside of your tribe. Love strangers. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Wives are instructed to love their husbands and their children. So, and the gospel, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says it's the love of God that compels us and we urge you, we implore you, be reconciled with God. And so there's a love for those who have yet to believe. When we come to this passage here, 1 John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is inspiring the Apostle John to apply this passage to the relationships within the body of Christ. Love one another. It's in the vein of Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, where in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 we read, do good to everyone, especially to the household of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 12 the Apostle Paul is writing to the, the, the young church in the city of Thessalonica, Greece. And he's writing to these young believers who are coming out of idolatry. And he says, I'm praying that your love will abound and overflow for one another and for everyone else. Right? So we as Christians are called to love one another in this room, within the body of Christ, yes. But our love doesn't stop at the doors. Does that make sense? But the application of this text is dealing with the household relationships between the people of God. Right? Is that clear? I, I thought it was a good question. I just want to make sure that that that, that was, was not, you know, miscommunicating the scriptures and, and that. So in order to apply this command, love one another, then John begins by providing a contrast. And we looked at that contrast. He began there by giving us two examples of what it means to love and not mean, what it does not mean to love one another. He begins with the example of Cain, who, whose example characterizes the, the hatred of the world. And Cain, uh, because he belonged to the devil, did not belong, belonged to the evil one, did not belong to, the, to God. Um, hatred rested in his heart, manifested itself in murder. The root of it was jealousy and the fruit of it was murder. In verse 14, there's a shift. And John moves from darkness to light, from death to life, from hate to love. And he begins by shifting our focus to the example of Jesus Christ that should characterize the love of the church. The first thing that we saw there in verse 14 is that the evidence of life is love. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. It's a vital sign of new life. It's a vital sign of being born again, that we love one another. Now let's look at the second half of verse 14. You guys all caught up? All right, here we go. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Now listen to what he says. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Here John is making an assertion. He's saying that whoever does not love remains in death. That whoever, who, who do, whoever does not love has never passed over from death to life. If the, if the characteristic of your life is not to love in that self-sacrificing manner that we considered last Sunday of Jesus Christ, if that's not the characteristic of your life, 
John says, do not fool yourself. Do not deceive yourself. You may be nice and there may be people you like. But if your life is not characterized by love, then do not imagine that you have passed over from death to life. This doesn't mean, this doesn't mean what, you know, uh, I had life at one time and, and now I don't. No, John says you've never had life. You've never known the eternal life that Christ promises and provides. The absence of love shows the absence of life. This doesn't mean that we never backslide. It never doesn't mean that we never struggle with obeying this command. But if there is no conviction about a broken relationship, if there is no desire for reconciliation, if there is no prompting, if God's not prompting in your heart that when you see a person you cringe and you, you, you have a sour attitude towards them and, and there's no desire to, to treat them in a loving, Christ-honoring way, you continue to harbor ill will towards other people with no conviction and there's no movement of the Spirit of God on the inside saying, listen, this has to be made right. The Word of God is saying you need to examine your profession of faith because it's devoid of love and if it's devoid of love, it's, uh, love, it's devoid of life. We might say it this way. I think we have this on the screen. Before salvation... We loved ourselves, and we hated others. After salvation, notice the change. We love others, and we deny ourselves. And so if you take a look at those two statements, which of those two statements would best characterize your life? The, the contrast cannot be more stark and sobering. Look at verse 15. Anyone, other translations say everyone, this is an inclusive word. Anyone who does, who hates a brother or a sister, everyone who hates a brother or sister, the Bible says is a murderer. Now hate, it, we use that word so often in our culture, it's like we almost overuse hate and apply it to so many different things that it, it kind of loses its meaning the same way love, that we, you know, we love pizza, we love cars, we love football games, and we love Jesus, right? And it's all the same. How do we know the difference? And we use hate the same way. Consider some of the ways that we use hate. When you've, if you disagree with someone, you're a hater. If you have a different political view than someone, you're motivated by hate. If someone doesn't agree, if you don't agree with someone's belief, well, you're intolerant and hateful. What used to be Civil discourse is now labeled hate. We've created a separate categories of crime called hate crimes. And many things now fall under the category of, uh, 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 fall under the sin of hate. Bullying is hate. Racism is hate. Violence is hate. Social injustice is hate. And I was reflecting on that this week. It dawned upon me is that the effect of all of this is that we easily compartmentalize and we dismiss the teaching of Scripture regarding love and hate. And this is what we might say. Well, because I'm not prejudiced, I don't hate anyone. Because I'm not a bully, I'm not a hater. Because I'm not violent, I'm not guilty of hate. And yet we must consider what the Word of God here is saying. Anyone who hates... The word here 
Yes, the fruit is seen in those actions that I just described. But the root of this word, hate, has the idea of to harbor disdain in our hearts for someone. Harboring disdain in our hearts for someone. It's detesting someone. We use the idea of hate in different ways in our language, in our culture. We might say things like, <laughs> man, if, if looks could kill, right? That fiery look in someone's face is a manifestation of hate in the heart. We might say something like this. Well, it's like they're, they're just spitting on me. It's unlikely that any of us would ever spit at someone. And yet that idea of spitting is the idea of showing disgust and contempt. And we may not spit at someone physically with our, you know, with our saliva, but in our hearts, we're spitting that contempt. That's the root, the expression of what John is getting at here in the word. If anyone has contempt in, in his heart in such a way for brother that it's as though he were spitting on them, uh, treating them as though they were nothing. That person is a murderer. You say, well, John, you're kind of extreme. Well, not so fast. Can you think of anyone else who says something similar to that? How about initials JC? You guys here? You good? I need an amen here somewhere. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if I have these verses on the screen. Do I have the verses on the screen, Benjamin? If not, okay. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. This is the passage that um, Thomas um, spoke, uh, preached on a couple Sundays ago. Matthew chapter 5, 21 22. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, right? So do not commit murder. If you commit murder, you're guilty of judgment. But I tell you, said Jesus, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Notice the encompassing scope of this command. Anyone who is angry, anyone who shouts at their brother, Raka, that's a word of insult. It's a derogatory calm, uh, 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 a derogatory uh, word. It's a, uh, a name. It's an insult. It's a racial slur. You fool. We get our English word idiot from that word fool. You idiot. You see how pervasive these command is this is what the word of god is getting to i howard marshall in his commentary 
On 1 John said, hatred is the wish that the other person was not there. It's the refusal to recognize his rights as a person, the longing that he might be dead. John Calvin commenting on this verse said, for we wish him to perish whom we hate. And so it's easy for us to dismiss and say, well, I'm not a hater because I don't do this. I'm not a murderer because I don't do that. But when we begin to understand what, how God uses the word hate, we find ourselves in need of a savior. For I doubt that there is not a person here who is guilty of any of these charges that the Lord has brought. You see, your temper is not your deepest issue. Your bitterness, although it's poisoning everything around you, is seeping a greater threat into your life than you can even realize. If the way of life is anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and no desire to love, the danger is not the action the danger may be that you have never passed from death to life. And your soul. Your soul is in danger of eternal hellfire. This is the weight of Scripture. John says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing or abiding in him. You can't pass from death to life without dealing with the heart issue. It's going to be manifested here. So if that is what it hate is, what does it mean to love and what is the hope Here's the glorious news, good news of the gospel. The evidence of spiritual life is love and the essence of love is self-sacrifice. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. John here shifts when he contrasts the hate that is characteristic of the world, of those who are devoid of the spirit, have never been born again from that of Jesus Christ and the love that should characterize the church of Jesus Christ. And so John begins, I'm going to just take a look at this. He begins with an absolute in verse, the first part of verse 16. He's going to give to us an absolute. This is the standard. He says, Jesus laid down his life for us. We see that in verse 16, right? This is how we know what love is. How do we know what love is? It's far more than just warm feelings. It's far more than just being nice or liking someone. This is what love is. This is when he says love one another. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, now we need to stop and, and think about this here for a few moments. See, hold your place here in 1 John and go back with me to the book of John. John chapter 10. Uh, John chapter 10. And, and uh, let's consider... 
these, these are the words of Jesus Christ. He's in this section of teaching in the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, and he's talking, he's describing himself as the good shepherd. And this is his commentary. This is how he foresees what is going to happen there on Easter weekend. Beginning in verse 11, listen to what Jesus said. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not, own, it does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the, flocks and, uh, attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The command I received from my father. This is this command I received from my father. Did you hear what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying? He says, as a, as a good shepherd, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. This is the demonstration. The, the idea of being laid down is to be being laid down as an offering, to be laid low. Christ says, I'm going to be laid down. I'm going to lay down my life as an offering. I'm going to be laid low for the sheep so they might, be, they might live. Here we see the, the greatest demonstration of love. This is how love is defined. John would, Jesus would later say on, on the eve of his own crucifixion that with the disciples on that night, he says, uh, I, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. This is what Christ did. This is what Jesus Christ did. When, when we looked at those verses there before Christmas where it says that the Son of God appeared to take away the sins of the world. This is what John was referencing to. That Christ was able to take away our sins because he laid himself down for us. Imagine summertime. You're at the water. You're sitting on the edge of a pier. And Someone runs past you, says, I love you, I love you, and they jump into the water and they drown. You say, well, that, this, that person's crazy. I'm glad they love me, but I didn't need them to love me. They're, they're, they, they drowned. But imagine you're sitting on that same pier and you fall over the edge and you're drowning. And someone springs into action and they jump in and their peril, your peril becomes their peril and they drown and you're saved. Greater love has no, no one has greater love than this than to lay down their life for a friend. This is what Christ has done. He laid himself down to do for you what you could never do and what no one else could ever do for you. To bring salvation. To give to you the promise of eternal life. The Apostle Paul 
used similar language in Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Do you see that? Do you see what that is? There's a song I listened to on the radio the other day. I heard it on the radio the other day. It says, on my good days, I'm a child of God. And on my bad days, I'm a child of the devil. Now that's not what it says. On my good days, I'm a child of God. And on my bad days, I'm a child of God. Because of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see that? Dearly loved children, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. John uses a different word than John, uh, Paul uses a different word than the word John used. He says, and gave himself up. And he gave himself up for as a fragrant offering sacrifice to God. John says that Jesus laid himself out like an offering. Paul says, he handed himself over. He voluntarily gave of himself as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice pleasing to God. Look at verse 16. Here's the application. Oh, let me go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We ought. This is a strong word. It carries a sense of obligation. This, is, this word is not a suggestion. Hey, you might want to try this. Hey, maybe if you're up to it, you're feeling good, you might want to try laying down your life for your... No, we ought to love, or to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is something that, that must be followed through. This must be carried out. The idea of ought carries the idea of indebted or debt or being indebted. It's an obligation to make a repayment. It, Jesus used this word in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, hey, how many times am I supposed to forgive the one who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus, let me tell you a story. There was a man who owed his master a debt he could not pay back. He owed he was obligated to. He ought. In the same way that you have been forgiven by your Father in heaven, forgive one another. Forgive one another is what Jesus came back with. Romans chapter 13 captures this idea clearly. Romans chapter 13 verse 8. I don't know if I have that verse up there or not, but it says this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves Others has fulfilled the law. That word debt twice in Romans chapter 13 verse 8 is that word for ought. We are indebted. It's sometimes it's used in scripture as necessity. We must lay down our lives for brothers and sisters. There is a duty. There is a demand. This is a necessity. The point that the scripture is making here is this. Is that being the beneficiaries of Christ having laid down his life for us. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ for the, the salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins, you are now indebted to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. Greater love has no one than this, 
that one lays down their life for their friends. Verse 17. John is giving us an argument. And what he's saying in verse 17, he says, you cannot claim to love God while not loving your brother. The one who has a need. And he uses the argument... And he says this, he says, if, if anyone who has the goods of this world, the resources of this world, the means to be able to live in this life, and I would imagine that's all of us here, the, the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter, water, and you see someone who has need, and that person closes off their mercy, there's no feeling and there's no giving. How can the love of God be in that person? How can that person say that they love God and they've experienced the love of God? The point that John is making here is this, in this contrast, Cain, the example of Cain is the hatred of the world, the love of Christ is to be the love that characterizes the church. And so he ends verse 18 with this final charge. And then, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. Do not merely, he's he's not saying here, don't tell people you love them. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this, do not merely walk around saying, I love you, and then never do anything about it. You put your love into action and in truth. That speaks of the attitude, right? Sincerity. We might use the word. Love one another in action and in sincerity or from the heart. You know, I, I could tell Vicky I love her, but if I never come home at night and I have other ladies on the side... She'd say, well, you, you can say you love me all you want, but you're, you're a liar. Or if I would say, hey, I love you, but I come into the house at night and I'm just really harsh and gruff. She'd say, well, you can say you love me, but, but your words say something else. That's what John is getting at here. Our love must be both in action and in attitude. What is seen in your life? You guys have five more minutes? If you give me five minutes, it will be done, okay? Let me wrap this up, right? You guys, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write fast because I don't have anything on the slide. I, I was going to preach this next week, and then this morning when I was going over the sermon again and praying, I said, no, just, we're just going to bring it today, all right? So you guys good? Let me give you seven ways some of you are going, how are you going to get that done in five minutes? Just bear with me. I'm going to read them and make a comment. Number one, how do we, put, how do we love one another? How do we lay down our lives and love, by loving and loving one another? How do we do that? Number one, let me give you some examples. Providing practical help and material assistance to the needs we see in others. Providing 
practical help, material assistance to the needs of others. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 illustrate what verse 17 was talking about. When we see someone in need, we help. Number two, releasing my anger when wronged and forgiving the one who has, who has offended and sinned against me. Releasing my anger when wronged and forgiving the one who has sinned against me. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Bearing one another's burdens. Number three, bearing one another's burdens. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law. Coming alongside and stepping into someone's life as they maybe a season, a situation that they find themselves in, and you're just going to walk with them. Bearing one another's burdens, an expression of love. Number uh, four, sharing in the life of an assembled gathering of Christians. Being part of the church. Easy to, to come and receive. And that is step one. But to follow Christ and to obey this command of love one another is that you and I must be part of a local gathering of Christians. Hebrews chapter 24, 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Spur one another unto love and good deeds and do not neglect the forsaking of yourselves together and do this all the more as you see the Lord's return approaching. Number five, limiting my rights and my freedoms for the good of other Christians. Limiting my rights and freedoms for the good of other Christians. First Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through 13. First Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through 13. The issue there that was threatening the church in Corinth was is that as Christians were coming out of idolatry, some Christians who had a sensitive conscience says, man, we can't eat meat that's been offered to idols in the marketplace. Other Christians are going, those idols are no, they're, they're nothing. They're, they're pieces of stick. They're, they're statues of gold. That's all they are. They're not gods. We're, we're free to eat this food. Paul writes, and he says, do not destroy the faith of the one who, for whom Christ has died by eating fruit, uh, by eating fruit, by eating food, moot, <laughs> meat that has been offered to idols. Limit your freedom for the well-being of someone else. Oh, we need to hear that in the church today. When our attitude so often is, well, I don't care. I'm free to do whatever I want. Are we? Number six, investing generously, sacrificially in missions and the work of the gospel. Investing generously and sacrificially in, the, in missions and the work of the gospel. Third John, verses five through eight. And number six, seven, praying fervently and faithfully for one another. Praying fervently and faithfully for one another. I just, looking at the example of Jesus Christ, in that upper room, before the crucifixion, Jesus, Peter boasts, and he says, Lord, these other guys, you can't count on them, but you count on me. I'm going to lay down my life for you. The same word that Jesus used. Jesus said to Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter, Satan, has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for all of you. 
John chapter 17, verses 9 through 19, you hear Jesus' prayer for his disciples. One of the ways that we love each other is that we faithfully and fervently pray for one another. This is the scope of the command when the word of God says, love one another. Listen, not in words only, but in actions and in truth. Does the way you act and react towards others reflect the life and love of God? That's the question. I exhort you today to do two things. As we leave, do not hurry out and forget verse 16. By this we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This week, today, would you meditate on the significance of Christ laying down his life for you? And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters.